Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, We are so glad that you're with us this morning. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Hanford. We are so excited that you are tuning in with us this week. Even as I'm preaching right now, uh, California is just a mess. Um, We have wildfires and rolling blackouts and a heat wave and all of the other things that are happening right now. And so um, as these things are affecting us in different ways, just continue to keep these things in your prayers. Um, We have, we are, we will continue to, um, but just know that uh, we're praying with you, for you, and uh, we will continue to do so. Uh, But we, we press on. Um, We are continuing in our series in Galatians. Uh, This week specifically, we get to be in Galatians 3, starting in verse 19. So you can flip over there or uh, go ahead and take your smartphone or or iPad or computer or whatever it is uh, that you're accessing a Bible on. You can flip over to there, and we'll get to that in just a second. So this morning, really, I want to challenge you to think about our laws, the laws that we have in the United States and what the purpose of those laws are. Think about why there is a law regarding stealing and why we aren't allowed to steal. Now, I stole one thing in my entire life. My family and I, we were on vacation. We were actually on a cruise. I think I was like in fifth or sixth grade or something like that. Uh, And we got off this cruise and it was like that little three-day cruise to Ensenada, Mexico, you know. Um, And so I had no clue. We, anyway, we got off the ship and uh, we walked around. We did the tourist things. We walked by a bunch of little shops and that sort of thing. And uh, there was one little shop that we walked by, and they had uh, these little wooden turtles uh, for sale. And they were probably like a dollar each. I mean, literally like the size of a quarter turtles. And uh, I really wanted one, and I didn't have any money with me. And so I just grabbed one, and I put it in my pocket. It terrified me, by the way. But I grabbed it. I put it in my pocket. We went around. We shopped the rest of uh, the day or the other couple hours that we were there. We got back onto the boat. And I was terrified that someone was going to catch me, so I hid it in my luggage. And then we got home, and I unpacked my luggage, and I hid it in my drawer because I was really scared my mom and dad were going to find out, and I was getting it punished for stealing. Um, and then eventually, like a couple days later, I was so nervous about it that I, uh, I, I got that wooden turtle. I took it outside. I put it in the trash can never to be seen or heard from again because of the fact that I felt so incredibly guilty about stealing this turtle that was probably in reality uh, less than 10 cents to, uh, to be able to make. Uh, but the law, really, the law is in place for a couple different reasons, but the biggest is so that everyone in our country has an understanding of the rules we need to play by in order for our society to to be healthy, to be happy, and to continue to move forward. Now, to be fair, I don't know if anyone in our current society is any of those things, but that's why we have laws in the first place. Each and every one of us, at some point in our life, suffers from this idea of guilt in some way, much like when I was dealing with the stolen turtle. Okay, and if you just tuned in, it wasn't a real turtle, it was a wooden turtle. Rewind and listen to my story. But from the time that I stole that turtle, I felt incredibly guilty about that. We know we shouldn't have done something. We know we did something wrong. I knew I shouldn't have stolen that turtle, but I did it anyway. 
and we do things and we know we shouldn't do those things. And so because of that, we want to do something to kind of make up for that guilt. We want, to, we want, we, we want in some way to pay back that person that, that we maybe harmed in some way. You cut someone off trying to get in line for the Starbucks drive through because it's a thousand cars long and you went a little bit too fast and cut the guy off uh, behind you. So you feel guilty because of that. Well, some of you don't, but, but you feel guilty because of that. And then what happens is then you get to the window and you're like, all right, hey, I would like to pay for the person behind me because I was a jerk and I would like to pay for them. Uh, and so you pay for their coffee, you feel better about yourself and that guilt uh, kind of goes, goes away. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians to remind them that they don't need to have a spirit of guilt because they no longer follow the law, but have a spirit of freedom in Christ because all they need to do is put their faith in Jesus. That's why this entire series is being framed by the idea of Jesus plus nothing. Is because all we have to do is place our faith in Christ. But Paul asked the question then in verse 19 about the law, about, about the law that he gave to, that God gave to Moses all the way back hundreds of years prior. What was the point of the law in the first place? If we aren't to have a burden of guilt anymore, what was the purpose of the law in the first place? So let's check it out starting in verse 19. It says this, why then was the law given at all? Great question, Paul. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So contrary to what the Judaizers sought to practice and promote, Paul summarizes the purpose of the law in verse 19 and 20. The purpose of the law is to display the depths of man's sin. That's the entire purpose of the law. And we talked a little bit about this last week. We finished on verse 19. Uh, last week, if you were here in person or online, we finished in the same spot. That in verse 19, Paul talks about the idea that the law was in place to show man that he was indeed sinful. That was the purpose of the law. The law was given to bring men to a point of recognizing their need for grace. So the law really was never put into place to save people. It was actually put into place so people could know that they were breaking the law. It's, it's a small change. It's a small distortion. But it's an important one for us to be able to, uh, for us to, be able to understand. Because if people don't know they are sinful, if people don't know they're breaking the law, then they have no desire for someone else to come and save them. So if people don't know what the law is... If they don't know that they are inherently sinful people, if they don't know that they are sinning on a regular basis, there's no reason for their need for a Savior. So let's pretend for a second there was no law at all. Let's pretend like the Old Testament had no law in it. There was no Mosaic law at all. No standard for moral living that came from the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, Jesus walks onto the scene, right, in Luke. Little baby Jesus is born. And he comes onto the scene and he starts his ministry. He turns water to wine. He does all of that stuff. And his public ministry officially starts after he gets baptized. And then he starts teaching about the fact that, hey, you know what? I am going to come. I'm going to teach for three years. And then I'm going to be killed for your sins. 
And then after that, I'm going to conquer death. You're going to see me for a little bit longer. Then I'm going to go up to heaven before I return again at a later date. So he's teaching all of these things. These things are all well and good. But if you have no understanding of what sin is, and if you have no understanding of a moral code to, to kind of contrast our actions against them, then we have no need for a savior. So if there was no law, we have no need for a savior. In other words, it's not enough that something is free. It's not enough that something is free because Jesus comes and he's offering freedom. He's offering this grace to us at no cost to us. We literally have to do nothing except believe in our hearts and confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's all we have to do in order to gain salvation. It is free to us. We have to do nothing. So it's not enough that something is free. We also have to recognize that thing as necessary. And if we had no law in the first place, then our free grace, we don't understand that it is necessary. So if you don't believe me that just because something is free doesn't mean that you want it, go ahead and log on to Facebook Marketplace right now and look at the items in the free category. There are a slew of items in there that you have zero desire to get, even though that they're free. They're no cost to you outside of maybe a couple miles worth of gas. But you don't want them. Why? Because you don't deem them as necessary. Most people don't have a use for dirt and old barbecue grills. They're not necessary in most cases. We see then that the law defines sin and it also intensifies sin so that it may be recognized as a problem. And then once we see that problem, once we recognize that problem, grace then becomes necessary. Our faith then becomes necessary. Jesus at that point, becomes necessary. Sin, it's, it's kind of like an injury, right? Kind of like the darkness and, and the discoloration of a wound actually reveals its, its presence. But the, the swelling of the injured portion of the body makes the injured uh, part of the body even more obvious. The, the worst injury I ever got, I was in it was like towards the end of my seventh grade year. I thought I was doing great, you know, junior high. I largely had gotten through junior high unscathed. Um, and, uh, and I was out practicing with my brother's baseball team. I think my mom was teaching or something like that. And she was like, yeah, go watch Mike's practice. So I went out to my brother's baseball practice. They were short a guy and I was pumped because I had my gloves. So I went out and I played, you know, right field for him. And so they're taking batting practice, and at the same time taking batting practice, guys are fielding, and they're, they're working on their infield drills, and their outfield drills, and all of those things that they're supposed to do. And all of a sudden, a ball gets hit into right center. And there's two things you need to know about me at this point in my life. I was short, I was slow, and I was round. That's three things. I added the round part. Okay. But all of those things are necessary for you to understand what is about to happen because a ball was hit to right center, more right than to center, and so I'm, 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 I'm slowly walking probably because speed wasn't my forte, and uh, I'm getting to the, the pop-up as quickly as I can, and all of a sudden I hear my brother, who was playing second base at the time, yell something really loud at that point. I thought he said decision. I had no clue what was happening. And all of a sudden, I felt the center fielder's shoulder fit perfectly into my eye socket. And I laid on the ground. I was knocked out for a couple of seconds. I remember opening my eyes and there was a bunch of people around me. 
Uh, later on, I learned that what my brother yelled from second base was actually collision. Um, he needed to work on his enunciation at that point on his life. But my eye, it felt like my eyeball was hanging off the side of my face because there was a massive swelling going on on my eyeball. And it revealed that there was actually a deeper injury underneath where I think, I can't, I can't prove it because we decided not to go get x-rays. It was like, oh, it was a really, really bad black eye. Um, but I think I cracked something in my, in my face. You know, you could feel it. I can actually still feel it. And there's a bump right there. So something bigger went on underneath the scenes than had actually uh, happened. And the only reason we could see that is because the massive amounts of swelling that was happening to my eye. That's what the law does for sin. The law amplifies what it is that we are doing wrong. We can see more easily where we are failing, where we are falling short, where the sin is in our life because of the fact that the law points it out for us. The law magnifies that problem of sin just as swelling draws attention to an injury. As sin increases, the grace of God is then enabled and the grace of God at that point gets to abound. The law, by kind of defining and magnifying the problem of sin, promotes the grace of God. Those two things actually go hand in hand with one another, which is the only remedy for sin. The curse, which we talked about last week, the curse produced by the law does not exclude God's blessing when it drives men to grace through faith. You know, the law was given kind of temporary provision until the permanence of Jesus came. That's what verse 19 talks about. The law was like, kind of like scaffolding that was used during, uh, during construction. And then eventually, obviously, that scaffolding gets removed. But the law was like kind of the, like the temporary walkways and the walls in a building that's being remodeled. We can use the building. We can get from point A to point B. But that being said, it, 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 like those conditions render themselves considerably inferior to those that will be around when construction's complete, when Jesus comes. So let's keep moving. Galatians 3, 21 to 22, it says this. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Okay, the promises of God, we have to remember, is what God promised to Abraham. It's that Abrahamic covenant that we talked about last week, that God was going to bless every person on earth through him. So what this is saying is, is the law therefore opposed to what God promised Abraham? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So now Paul is referencing the idea that we discussed last week. He's doubling down on that idea, the difference between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants. He was saying that the law of Moses was actually inferior to the promises God had made to Abraham. And the law can only pronounce a curse. The law can only tell you that you were doing bad. It couldn't credit you as righteousness. We talked about that in the example of uh, getting pulled over. Right? When you get pulled over, you never get pulled over just so a police officer can tell you how good of a job you're driving. Okay? They only pull you over to tell you that you broke the law in most cases. Okay? 
So the law only can pronounce a curse, but the promises alone could produce a blessing. The law was inferior to the promises because, uh, because it could not modify or nullify those promises. So since the promises came first and were ratified by God, those promises were the precedent that was set. That was it. The law was inferior to the promises because the law was provisional. The law was preparatory while the promises were permanent. So Paul is saying that the two covenants, they don't contradict each other. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, they don't contradict, they don't contradict each other. They simply serve two different functions. And that's why God can have those two functioning together because it's two different things. It's like going in to see if you broke your arm. Right? The x-ray machine isn't opposed to your arm being healed because it doesn't do anything to heal your arm. That's simply not the function of the x-ray machine. The function of the x-ray machine is to see if your arm is broken. And then once it, it says, yep, your arm is broken, then other things are used to be able to heal your arm. Things that function the way that they're supposed to. The x-ray machine simply points out that your arm needs to be healed. The Mosaic law is complementary to the promise of salvation through faith because it revealed that nothing but grace can produce life. Nothing but grace can produce life. That's Paul's argument in a nutshell. So let's press on. Press on. Galatians 3.23. It says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under, under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to to the promise. Again, that's the promise that God made with Abraham way back in the beginning. So, so far, Paul has focused the reader's attention on some very crucial distinctions. This idea of flesh versus spirit, law versus grace, faith versus works, Mosaic covenant versus the Abrahamic covenant, all of which would have been important because these distinctions weren't understood or weren't applied by the Judaizers, the same people who came in and taught a false doctrine to the church in Galatia. So all of these things would have been important. In verses 23 to 29, though, Paul turns the distinctions which the Jews, or turns to the d- distinctions that the Jews have to make, as well as those in which the light of the cross can't be made anymore. He begins breaking down walls, essentially. So verses 23 and 25 deal specifically with the Jewish people. That's who he's talking to in verses 23 and 25. And we can see that because he uses the pronoun we. Remember, Paul was a Jew himself. So when he's talking to people who were Jewish, he said we. So the pronoun we draws our attention to the Jewish application of Paul's words. And so those critical terms are before and now. Before is in verse 23, now is in verse 25. So while the Jews were once kept under the law, verse 23, they are no longer under the law as a tutor, verse 25. 
The law which the Judaizers, they, they wanted to exalt. They said, hey, you have, to, you have to become circumcised in order to follow Christ. You have to do all of these external things. Paul said, it's gone. It's abolished. It's done. It had performed its function prior to the coming of Christ. That's when it had performed its function. The law's task of kind of, or, or task of, kind of restraining men until Christ shows up has been accomplished. That's what Paul is telling the Jews. And because of that, the observance of the law that used to be required in the Old Testament is now no longer binding to a New Testament believer. It's no longer binding. And, and what's strongly implied in these verses is the foolishness of trying to kind of turn back the clock to once again live under the restrictions of the law, something that we're comfortable with. Hey, let's go back to what we used to do. Even though it's not as good, even though it no longer works, even though it no longer functions, let's go back to what we used to do simply because we're comfortable with it. That's largely what the Judaizers were doing here, and Paul was warning them against that. But in verses 26 to 29, they begin, Paul shifts his focus, and that focus turns to the Gentiles. Okay, we can see this, this focus kind of shifts because uh, we have a change in pronouns uh, from we in verses 23 to 25 to you in verses 26 to 29. So in this section, we have to understand that the divisions that used to divide us, the divisions that used to divide the people in the Galatian church, the divisions that used to divide the Jews and the Gentiles should no longer exist once you're adopted into God's family. And we're going to teach deeper into this uh, next week, but, but I, want to, I want to camp on this for just a minute. If we are one with Jesus, then we are one with each other. There is a spiritual equality amongst all believers. Every single one of us, when we enter into the family of God, there is a spiritual equality. No one is greater, no one is lesser. And the minute that we put a hierarchy into place, we are adding to the gospel of Christ. No one is better, no one is worse than anybody else in the family of God. This verse doesn't deny that God has created, you know, racial, social, gender differences, but those in no way denote any sort of spiritual inequality. A lot of people tend to take these verses, these 26 through 29, kind of out of context right, to say there's no such thing as male or female, there's no such thing as race, there's no such thing as, no, God put all of those things into place. God created male and female very different. He created people to have different color skin tones on purpose, and all of it's beautiful and all of it's perfect. God was intentional in doing that, and the moment we say things like, well, I'm, I'm colorblind, there's no difference between a man and a woman, no, there is. And God put those into place on purpose, and it's beautiful, and it's perfect. So we all have spiritual equality under Christ. Remember, first and foremost, the context of all of this is salvation. That's what we're reading into here, salvation. Any stretch beyond that would be an error. So this verse does nothing to change gender roles. It does nothing to change anybody, the color of anybody's skin or anything like that. Okay? This is simply talking about that we are all equal when it comes to salvation in Christ. And just as in any family, anyone, everyone has different roles, everyone has different responsibilities. It's no different in God's family. And this doesn't make any person more important than the other. Because again, remember, the minute we insert a hierarchy into this entire thing, we're adding to the gospel of Christ. So the scripture really is one where Paul takes all of these arguments 
and says, look, we're all one. We're all in this together. Every single one of us. As long as you've placed your faith in Christ, you no longer have to pay for your guilt because Jesus has already atoned for it. That's what Paul is saying here. But so often what happens is in the same way that when I stole that wooden turtle when we were on vacation, we sit feeling guilty when really the reality is is that we should actually feel broken as people because we broke God's moral code. And, and beyond his moral code, we, we broke this, this commitment that we made to him to choose to follow him every single day. Are we guilty? Yes. Every single time we sin and break God's moral law, break that new covenant that he has made with us, we are guilty. But because we follow Jesus, we no longer have to worry about the feeling of guilt. What we should be doing is feeling broken. Broken because every single time we sin, we've placed that on Jesus who hung on the cross for it. That's why we should feel broken and not guilty. We can't just feel bad. We need to feel broken. Jesus wants this like spiritual brokenness from us. The thing we feel when we know that we have sinned against our spiritual father. That we've sinned against his son who died on a cross for us. That's why 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us, I mean it tells us this regarding our broken state. It says, it says godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow, that's, that's brokenness. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, leaves no guilt. But worldly sorrow brings death. Guilt brings death. So as we go about our lives and we continue to follow God every single day, day in and day out, we need to do our best to come to a point of repentance that produces salvation. That's what we need to do. When we recognize that we have broken his moral law, that we are his sons and daughters, according to the, the end of Galatians chapter 3, that we are indeed his sons and daughters, we need to come to a point of repentance, of brokenness that produces salvation, that produces greater holiness in us, create greater sanctification in us. And the only way we're able to understand our need for that salvation is why? We understand our need for that salvation because the law was established by God through Moses. That's why. That's how we understand that we've sinned against God. Because the law showed us the depths of our sin. That's why the law is important. So what does this mean for the church? Now, church, if, if every time we sinned, we were broken over that sin. If every time we recognize that, that we fall short of God's moral law, if every time we do that, we were actually broken, we had godly sorrow, as 2 Corinthians 7.10 puts it, and didn't merely shrug it off or somehow condone it, we would be growing in holiness every single day. The church would look more like Jesus and less like hypocrites every single day. Because as we realize our brokenness because of the law, we, come, we become more holy because of our desire to be more like Jesus who covered us with grace. That's what the church would look like. And the more we seek to look like Jesus, the more attractive 
we are, because the less we look like the world, because we care less about ourselves and more about elevating him. That's what matters. That's what's important. Elevating Jesus first and caring less about how we look according to the world. There's a, a, a famous quote uh, by Gandhi. Gandhi wasn't a Christian or anything like that. Um, but there's a famous quote by Gandhi that says, sometimes the only way someone can see God is through a loaf of bread. I would actually counter that quote and say, most often the way that somebody can see God is through another believer. And as we continue to become holy, as we continue to become broken, and in that brokenness, we are able to have this godly sorrow we are able to shine more brightly for other people who need to see Jesus, which leads us to the question of who needs to see Jesus through you? Who is it in your oikos, your 8 to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your life, who is it that needs to see Jesus through you? And are they able to see him? Are you continuing to become more holy because of the fact that, that you are covered by grace. That you have a godly sorrow that's spurring you on towards holiness. And as you become more holy, you become a whole lot more like Jesus. And our world now, more than ever, needs to see Jesus. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. And uh, God, just be with our world be with the state of our world. I mean, there's just so many things that are happening that my heart hurts for not just our state, not just our county, not just our country, but our entire world that is broken. And God, that your law actually displays that brokenness for us. So God, thank you for the law. But God, I also want to thank you for for freeing us from being placed underneath that law. That you sent your son on our behalf so we would no longer have to, to be apart from you. That we have a mediator in him. So God, we thank you for that. And if you've not yet said yes to Jesus this morning and you're listening along, watching along with us today, we end this service every single time by saying the ABC. So with your head still bowed and eyes still closed, I just ask you to pray along with me. Say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That I know that I fall short every single day. And God, I'm broken because of that. I have a godly sorrow because of that. And in that sorrow, I believe, though, that you sent your son to die on the cross on my behalf. And so God, I thank you for that, that he was able to come, die, conquer death, and be that bridge for us. So then we can now choose to follow you every single day with our lives. So we can take that godly sorrow and turn it into sanctification. God, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for him, thankful for you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.